This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Hey, good morning, Trinity. For those who are joining us at home, I'm Pastor Ronnie Garcia. It's good to be with you guys. Um, there is a, um, a date that is marked in all of our hearts. Um, September 20th, 2017. Of course, that is the date that Hurricane Maria, Category 5 hurricane, came and ravished this island, hit us dead on. That date is actually a really complex one for us. It's actually not all bad. In fact, dare I say it, there's a kind of beauty to it. In fact, some of my very best memories in the 12 years that I've lived in Latin America are surrounding that date. As the storm was uh, out in the Atlantic and coming our way, uh, three families actually came to stay in my home so that we'd pass the storm together. And the night before the storm came, we uh, we prepped the house together. We made a meal and we ate together and we prayed together and we worshiped the Lord together. It was actually this incredibly sweet time of fellowship. In some ways, it was kind of a picture of heaven, of what we're going to be doing in the new heavens and the new earth. But while we enjoyed that really sweet fellowship, the storm was coming, and it would change everything. I've often uh, reflected on the beauty of both, both the, the beauty of the fellowship that I had, and it was so diverse. There was these three other families. We had this Venezuelan family even with us. The beauty of it and also this coming storm. Now, I begin this way because um, we're studying Acts, and something similar is happening. If you'll remember Acts begins, Jesus is resurrected, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, the Spirit is poured out, and there is this community, this fellowship that is forming, and it is growing by the thousands, and God is doing all of these powerful things, but there are threats to this fellowship that start to surface And so you have like these internal threats. If you read my pastoral letter, Ananias and Sapphira, right? Spiritual embezzlement. And then external threats, you have the religious establishment, right? The power brokers who are beginning to persecute the church, put them in jail and say, don't you dare talk about Jesus. But in spite of these threats, more and more people are being impacted by the gospel. And they're experiencing this thing that Luke, the author, calls the fellowship. The fellowship is this life together. They're they're sharing all that they had with one another. It's shocking generosity and shocking forgiveness and shocking grace and more grace. But while this, beautiful fellowship, while this beautiful fellowship was being experienced, a storm was forming, and it would come, and it's going to end in death and martyrdom, and it would end this fellowship that this early church was experiencing. And I wonder if this story that we're going to study today is... Um, felt is very similar to the experience that the disciples had when they were with Jesus in his earthly ministry. 
they were with him and they experienced sweet friendship and fellowship with him. Even the night before he was betrayed, they're at a table with him just enjoying the laughter that they must have had and just the love and affection that they must have shared with each other. But that sweet fellowship prefigured a storm because a few days later he would die and hang on a cross. And I wonder if the experience of the disciples and the experience of the early church is not the exception to the rule, but I wonder if it's actually the Christian life. What if that's what the Christian life is like? There are storms, but there's always this beauty that's with it. It's always both, isn't it? God is always advancing his purposes through these storms that are lined with beauty. And, and what if we had the eyes to see our lives like this. What if we could do that? Well, this morning, we're going to read this text together, and I think that's what it's going to help us to do, is to see our lives as beauty that comes in these storms. What we're going to see this morning are some, like, these initial bands of the storm that come first before the actual storm comes. And then, of course, we're going to see the storm arrive. And so as we study and give ourselves to this text, there's kind of two ways I want to organize it. First, we're going to see beauty up against external brutality, and then we're going to look at this and see beauty against internal division. So beauty, external brutality, and internal division, and that's going to direct our study this morning. Would you stand with me? And our text is a little bit long, but it is so rich. So let's like really try to stay with the text, and let's see what it says for us. Hear now the reading of God's word, Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And now we're in chapter 7. Then they cast him out, Stephen, out of the city... And stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God, it endures forever. May he bless it for all of us. Amen. You may be seated. From your history classes, do you remember that term, uh, the Pax Romana, right? The Pax Romana, that's kind of, it's Latin for like Roman peace. It's uh, history's, uh, historians associate it with the, re- the relative peace that was experienced in the Roman Empire starting in 27 AD, or 27 BC, 27 years before Jesus, and it lasted to about 187, so about 200 years. Now, Pax Romana, Roman peace. That is actually quite the misnomer. It it could give you the sense that Rome, the Roman Empire, was associated with peace. It was not. There was peace for those 200 years, but it's because the empire absolutely crushed any perceived threats that existed. Because Roman culture was brutal. Now, there's this academic, this papyrologist, Naphtali Lewis. That's, uh, that's just a fancy word to describe a guy who studies ancient scrolls in their original form. So this guy, he uh, uncovers a letter from a Roman businessman who was in Alexandria, this scroll. And when you read it, you can see how it really reflects how brutal ancient Rome was to the poor and the vulnerable. So in this letter, I'm going to read an excerpt. It's to this man's pregnant wife while he's on a business trip. This is what it reads. He says, I am still in Alexandria, and I beg and plead with you to take care of our little child. And as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. In the meantime, if you give birth, if it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, expose it. Y'all know what that means? Let it die. That's harsh, but that was actually a common attitude in Roman culture. He's like, listen, I'm on a business trip. I'm going to get paid soon. I'm going to help foot the bill. If it's a boy, you know, it's great. If it's a girl, you know what to do, right? Isn't that awful? Roman culture did not value goodwill and compassion. Those virtues were considered weakness, My dear friend Jules Martinez, he sends me this article by another academic, Rodney Stark. And Stark writes about, um, from a sociologist, historical sociological perspective, the growth of the early church. And he tries to explain it. He says, churches were refuges and oases from the brutality of Roman domination. Mercy was seen as a character defect. And pity was a pathological emotion. Roman philosophers taught that humans need to curb the impulse of mercy. See, Romans were pragmatic. People only looked out for their own tribe, for their own people, their own families. Now, I'll share all of that with you as a backdrop to what you're seeing happen in the Roman Empire in Acts chapter 6. See, the early church, it was increasing in number. But as it increased in number, it was also increasing in need, right? And specifically with all the widows. And let me explain. In the ancient Near East, inheritances were passed down from fathers to sons. And so the financial wealth 
stayed with the sons in the family. And so a security of a woman is tied to her husband. But if her husband died and makes her a widow, she's extremely vulnerable and cut off from the resources of her family. So widows had no way of taking care of themselves. They're um, extremely vulnerable and dependent on the generosity and compassion of their community. But this is the Roman Empire we're talking about. Like, they're brutal. They don't do that, right? And so that's how come you'll see this refrain in the Bible to care for the widows and the orphans and the aliens or the immigrants, right? They're vulnerable. But in the context, in the backdrop of Roman brutality, that is where this beauty begins to emerge. Christians, the early church, were so Countercultural. They uh, this fellowship. They they included people, just doing the best that they could with the little that they had. And what they did is they created this daily distribution of the, uh, to help with resources the most vulnerable people in their community. Caring for the least of these was absolutely ingrained in the value system of the early church. And in fact, they organized themselves around that value. They said, hey, we care about God's word, and we care about God's care for the least of these. You'll see that in verse 12. Look what they do. It says, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of God's word, uh, 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 the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Now listen, that's, that's not a dig, right? That's not like knocking on food and beverage industry here. It wasn't like a commentary on the relative value of service or the word of ministry. Listen, Jesus absolutely values service. Listen, on the last night that he was with his disciples, the Savior, and he would get on his knees, he would take a basin of water, and he would begin to clean the stinky, calloused feet of his disciples, the king on his knees, serving. The disciples got it. They understood what, what Jesus was about. What's happening here is they want to engage the entire church to participate in service, not just the 12, right? And so you look, that's why it says in verse 3, look there in your text, they say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, just heads up, this text is, is what the church has used to... Um, to establish the order of deacons. Have you ever heard of deacons? This is where deacons come from. Now, the idea here is not that deacons did everything for the church. It's that they were meant to be team leaders to ensure that the whole church is about this business. And so who's entrusted into this extremely valuable and important ministry? The very best, good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And so this ministry is not just about doing nice things. This is at the very heart and identity of the people of God, deserving of our very, very best. And see, it was in the backdrop of Roman brutality that this beauty of service begins to really come through. See, Christians were in juxtaposition to the value system of Rome. 
And guess what? People totally noticed. See, while the, uh, the apostles were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, those words were being authenticated by the very lives of the early church. And as they poured themselves out for others, they organized themselves in service to others. And, and guess, verse 7 tells us what happened. Look there in verse 7. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the, to the faith. So even like the priests right? The establishment, their cold hearts are being humanized. See, the storm was coming, but God's beauty was already breaking through into the lives of people who were then transformed by God's grace, and then they organized into teams of service for others. And so the haves and the have-nots in the early church, they ate at a common table, which is totally contrary to Roman brutality and pragmatism. Now, what about you? Is that, is that what this church is about? Does the, the beauty of the gospel shine through as we sit in tension with our culture? See, listen, many of us, we can see the excesses of our culture, but we prefer to tweet about it instead of living lives that contradict the culture in which we reside. Listen, Trinity can say on paper that we exist for the welfare of others, but what is Trinity? It's just you and me, right? Trinity's us. That's what Trinity is. Can I just be frank with us, some real talk? Uh, can I just, in my pastoral experience, just show you some, um, some pitfalls that I've noticed? Uh, my experience is that neither the rich or the poor are particularly good at this. Kind of stereotypically speaking, it's like the middle class that kind of buries, uh, that, way, that takes the, the, the bulk of, of service. Um, let me explain why. So with working class people, uh, with working class people, they live on extremely humble budgets. Of course, they don't, there's not a lot of income. They might even work in labor intensive jobs. The work is humble. And oftentimes they just, they work for cash. Maybe sometimes it's cash only, or it's really, they just live from paycheck to paycheck. That's pretty common for the working class. And so what happens is they never develop the, the joy or the instinct to work for free, right? If they're going to work, they're going to get paid for it. So, they don't, so the working class people never work for free. They expect to be compensated. And so they miss out on an opportunity to serve. Now, for upper class people, there's a different challenge. Usually the upper class is professionals and they're at the top of the totem pole. They're at the top of the pyramid, if you will. And uh, they're accustomed to employing people who serve, right? They don't serve themselves. If their service to be done, they'll pay for it. They'll get some guy to do it, right? That's how they do it. And so if that's your temptation, if you are part of that class, we don't want you to outsource it. 
I mean, we, we could pay for someone to do these things, but we want you to experience your God-given dignity of doing mundane and sacrificial tasks for people who are different than you. Listen, we could pay for someone to clean up outside. We could pay for someone to hand out the food boxes that we do on Thursdays. We could pay for tutors at the school. We, we could pay for people to help in the children's ministry. We could. We could outsource that. But we would miss out, you see. We don't want to outsource that. That's how we love our neighbor. That's where the beauty emerges. See, listen, Jesus was a king. He was at the top of the pyramid. He was at the top of the totem pole. And he got on his knees and he washed feet. And so should you. He didn't outsource the washing of feet. And that's what we need to be about. In the church, we serve together and therefore our message, our words is authenticated, right? And that's when the beauty begins to emerge. All right. So what we've said so far is that the storm is forming and the fellowship of the believers is unlike anything we have seen before in history. And so the storm and this beauty are kind of beginning to surface and emerge together, right? Now, the first band of the storm, to kind of put it that way, shows us the beauty over against external brutality of Rome. Well, the second, the second band of the storm is um, it's going to show us beauty up against internal division, that's where we're going. Now we're on to our second point. Now there's something in the human heart uh, that is um, scared of or uh, dismissive of the other. The other. Uh, you guys have been listening to me long enough. You know uh, a little bit about my story and my parents coming from Mexico. So my mother, who's absolutely the greatest person I've ever met. I mean, this woman is just terrific. Uh, she is gorgeous, and the, the heart is the size of Texas. I hope you get to meet my mom one day. She's coming for Thanksgiving. She is just amazing. Uh, now, she comes from Mexico. Now, at this point, my mother has lived in the United States longer than she lived in Mexico. But even still, although she speaks English perfectly, she speaks perfect English, she still speaks with a very thick accent. And, um, and she has... Um, uh, sometimes she'll use like Spanish syntax when she speaks English, right? So she'll still make those kind of mistakes. Now, on multiple occasions in my life, I have seen people treat my mother differently. Between her Mexican looks and her accent, uh, it has created some really uncomfortable moments. And, and it's not just like bad people who are just like racist, right? These are like actually nice people and sincere people. There's this assumption, though, when they see her skin and, and they hear her accent that maybe she's not bright and they, they, they're a little bit patronizing with her and they start dumbing things down. And sometimes they'll start talking louder and slower, like as if that's going to help anything. And sometimes they wouldn't ask my mom to volunteer for things, and she would be often overlooked. I have a lot of memories of this kind of thing. That behavior, 
is not uncommon against people who appear to be outsiders to the community. It is easy to overlook the other. Now, bring this story to your attention because this kind of phenomena is what presents itself as an internal threat in our passage today. So let's remember the details of our passage. The church is increasing in number. The the fellowship is working hard by providing for others through this daily distribution, specifically to these widows. But there was a complaint, right? There's this complaint that arose. Look there at verse 1 again. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, what is a Hellenist? Now, like the footnote in your Bible will tell you that it is a Greek-speaking Jew. And that's true, that's true, but it's way more than that. See, what had happened is because of um, the Jewish diaspora, There were Jews living all over the Roman Empire. And so the Jews in the Palestine area, they spoke Aramaic. But when the Jews from outside the outer parts of the the empire started coming into Jerusalem for Jewish festivals, they didn't speak Aramaic. They spoke the common trade language of the Roman Empire, which is Greek, right? That's why your New Testament is written in Greek. That's what gives them uh, this title, the Hellenists. But it was more than their language. They were actually totally like Greekified, right? It it was their accents, and it was the food that they liked to eat, and it was the way that they dressed. It was very, very different. There was this entire cultural divide between these two sets of widows. And so when the daily distribution was taking place to help out, it was really easy and even comfortable to overlook the outsiders, right? The other, the ones with the accents. This was the struggle of the early church. And in fact, this will be a theme that you're going to see repeated over and over again in your New Testament. But here is precisely where the beauty begins to emerge. The apostles had the wisdom and the humility to say, We have to change. We need to do better. We can't do everything. And so the leader said in verse 2, they said, pick out seven of your very best, right? And in fact, John Knox, the great uh, uh, Scottish reformer, says this is the church's first reformation, right? This is where they structurally had to change and go back to God's heart. And what was the response in our text? Look there at verse 5. It says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. This was like so encouraging to everyone. Now there's one detail that's really easy to miss there. All those names, all those weird names, they're listed. Like why include all of the names? It's because they're all Greek names. See, the apostles believed that the overlooked ones were uniquely capable of listening or of leading. Why? 
Because they, perhaps they knew something about Jesus in a special way because he was also an overlooked one. And so this problem that was mounting from within the fellowship, it could have fractured the whole movement, right? But it didn't. And in fact, the overlooked ones were enfolded. And even though this storm was forming, this, first, this band of rain that was coming was transformed into absolute beauty. Now, as I reflected on the character of this passage, and I really began to praise the Lord for this church, for Trinity. Like in God's providence, Trinity is a fellowship where people of vastly different cultures, right, are merging. Aren't we like strangely in the intersection of cultures, right? Have you ever been in a church like this? Like, this is strange and awesome. But there's a risk. There's a risk, isn't there? Right? If the church is composed of more Puerto Ricans than people from the United States, mainlanders, then the mainlanders can kind of feel ignored, right? Like, you Americans, you're just, you're just passing through. We're just going to ignore you because you're not going to be around anyway. You're going to leave anyway. And they, they can get ignored. And, and mainlanders, Americans, they, they feel that, don't they? They can feel that. But on the other hand, if the church is composed of more people from the United States than of Puerto Rico, then the, then the congregation can turn into this hub of cultural snobbery and cultural superiority, kind of this forum for ungodly complaining of Puerto Rico, right? It could do that. That could happen. Our cult, one culture can overlook the other culture. That's an age-old risk, isn't it? It started in Acts 6. But can I tell you what I've seen here in Trinity? It's beauty. I have seen Puerto Ricans look at Americans. Can I just pause? I just want to talk about that word American real quick. Two minutes. Everyone who lives all the way to the southern tip of South America can properly call themselves Americans because they belong to North or South America. It's difficult, though, that although everyone can use that word Americans, in Spanish, they would describe it as Estado Unidense, which is like, in, we would translate it like United Statesian, but we don't have that word in English. So we use American, from the people in the States use American as short form from people who come from the United States. And that's okay to have that as short form, but I do just want to, uh, to help our American brothers, from North American brothers, understand that it, it, if you're not careful, it can feel kind of presumptuous. So just be careful and you understand your context when you use that word American in that way. All right, back to it. I have seen Puerto Ricans look at Americans and say, I love how you have the courage to leave your home and your family, move to a country, move here to Puerto Rico, and then seek out community. You have redefined family in a way that's bigger than just skin and blood. You have turned to your brothers and sisters in Christ to be your new family. You have helped me to see and understand Jesus in a special way. Thank you. I've seen that. And then I've seen Americans 
look at Puerto Ricans and say, man, I, have, I want to learn from your spiritual buoyancy. You suffer with so much more grace than I do. You have a, a deep spiritual cheerfulness that I want to learn from. Fiesta is not just this event. It's like this way of life. You know, it, it, it's, it's as if you're tasting the joy of the wedding feast of the lamb that's going to happen at the end of time, but you're experiencing it right now. You have helped me to see and understand Jesus in a special way. Thank you. I've seen us talk like that with one another. Who does that? It's people who've been gospeled, who see that. It's incredible. Y'all, can we just keep that up here at Trinity? Can we just keep doing that? Can we keep seeing the other with such joy? It's beautiful. It's the merging of these cultures, and it's intrinsic to the gospel itself. Let's keep that up together. All right, let me just summarize. This... um, so this passage, right, it shows God's grace in the, va- in the face of some sketchy leadership choices and in the face of a culture that was absolutely brutal. And so we saw face a beauty in the face of uh, external brutality and in the face of internal division. But what we saw is grace and more grace that emerges as the storm is coming. And that's how the Christian life works beauty that emerges in the storm. And that's how come Christians, we, instead of praying for God to change our circumstances, we pray that God will change our heart in our circumstances. But the storm did come to this fellowship. And how could this most amazing, almost idyllic fellowship have known that it would all be gone soon? How could they have known that one of their most important leaders, Stephen, would die a violent death? How could they have known that they were going to lose all of their property and all of their security and get kicked out? How could they have known that they would never get back that fellowship that they shared for those few weeks? See, when people begin to act like Jesus and walk in the way of Jesus, they will also be persecuted like Jesus. Now, I know that we didn't read the whole of the rest of chapter 6 and chapter 7, but guess what happens to Stephen? Just like Jesus, he's accused with false charges, and he is violently murdered. The text says that the witnesses took off their coats, and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul of Tarsus. You know who that is, don't you? That is Paul, the apostle. And while mobs were heaving rocks on him and crushing his skull, and while he's bleeding out, just like Jesus, he says, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. We know where he learned to talk like that, don't we? And just like that, the storm arrived, and every disciple, with the exception of the 12, were scattered. 
And the storm took the witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria, where they would keep loving and serving Jesus. And this both like awful and beautiful all at the same time. With Stephen, there was no fear, no cheap anger, no desire for revenge. And all those scattered witnesses, there's no fear, no cheap anger, no desire for revenge. Such, such beauty right in the middle of the storm. The very first Christians knew that Jesus loved his enemies. They knew that he sacrificially served others. They knew that he did not hold their sin against them. And in fact, he died for them. Jesus, the Savior, organized his life around his disciples and even died for them so that we, the disciples, could organize our spiritual lives around the other. And when that happens, even in the storm, there is always, always, always beauty in the storm. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is scary to know that storms are forming and they are certain. How did your disciples have no fear or cheap anger? Or how is it they didn't desire revenge? We want to see what they saw. Lord, help us. Help Trinity. May this be a really sweet, sweet fellowship where we might serve you and your purposes. We love you, Lord. We ask you for courage, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.